On the 6th of March 1995, Scott Amadeur and Donna Riley took their friend Jonathan Schmitz on the Jenny Jones talk show and planned to drop a bombshell on John. Now, which of these ways would you choose to reveal your secret crush on someone? A, would you write that person a letter? B, would you tell the person in private in case he rejects you? Or C, would you tell that person that you're gay and you hope he is on national television? <laughs> In front of a live studio audience, Scott told John that he had a gay crush on him. Guess what, it's Scott that has the crush on you. You lied to me. And in a shocking twist of events, three days later, Scott was shot and killed in his trailer home in Michigan. Okay, what happened? Someone just came in with a gun and shot him. Just minutes after his death, Jonathan Schmitz called 911 to confess. When asked by the 911 operator why he had killed Scott, John answered, because he played a very bad thing on me. He took me to the Jenny Jones show. What had set off Jonathan Schmitz and caused him to shoot and murder his so-called friend? Scott Bernard Amadour was born on the 26th of January 1963 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. His father Frank was a truck driver and his mother Patricia was a housewife. After Scott was born, the family moved to Michigan and Frank and Patricia divorced shortly afterwards. Over the years, Scott dropped out of high school to serve in the military where he served three years before being honorably discharged with the rank of specialist. After leaving the military, Scott returned home to Michigan and worked in the telecommunications industry before leaving and becoming a bartender, which he described as his preferred profession. Scott enjoyed the social life that came with working late nights. He liked to make friends, and some would say he was a social butterfly. However, after some time, he left this job and became unemployed. Scott was also a gay man, and he was open and proud about it. He had told his family, and they were supportive of his sexuality. I found out that he was gay when he was still in the service, and uh, it was never really a big deal. Scott was described as a good friend who was very helpful and friendly. He would often support his friends who had HIV and would take them in when no one else would. Scott was a big fan of talk shows, and his favourite was The Jenny Jones Show. One day he was watching the show, and Jenny Jones promoted a new special segment that would feature on the show for a limited time. It was called Secret Crushes. While promoting the segment, Jenny Jones encouraged people with same-sex crushes to apply to be on the show. Scott was intrigued to hear about the new feature, and thinking nothing would come of it, he decided he would apply, as he had a crush on his new friend, 24-year-old Jonathan Schmitz. Jonathan Schmitz was a man that Scott had met earlier that year, Jonathan was born on the 18th of July, 1970, and worked at a restaurant called The Fox and Hound, which was located across the street from where he lived. John was recently single as he and his long-term girlfriend had broken up six months earlier. When Scott had applied to the show, he didn't really believe that he would hear anything back. However, sometime after his call, he received a phone call and was invited to go to Chicago to be on the show. Scott was excited to finally get the chance to confess his feelings to Jonathan, and he called their mutual friend, Donna Riley, to ask her to join him. 
Scott had met Jonathan through Donna, so it made sense to him to ask her to go on the show with him. Scott, Jonathan and Donna all lived near each other, in the Lake Orion area, and Donna actually lived in the same apartment complex as Jonathan. Scott had met Jonathan when he went to visit his brother, who also lived in the same apartment complex as Jonathan and Donna. Scott had seen Donna and Jonathan when they were outside in the parking lot, fixing Donna's car. Jonathan was more so Donna's friend, he was only acquainted with Scott. However, Scott still wanted to take him on the show, so Scott called Donna. During Scott's call to Donna, he told her that they were going to be in a lot of trouble, and when Donna asked him why, Scott informed her that he would be surprising Jonathan and telling him that he had a crush on him. Around the same time, producers of The Jenny Jones Show called Jonathan to announce that someone had a crush on him, and they wanted to confess it in front of an audience on national television. Producers of the show claimed that they had told Jonathan that his crush could either be a man or a woman, but also told him that he could only find out who it was if he were to go on the show. When he was asking who it was, and they said, well, we can't even tell you it could be a man or could be a woman. He said, well, then forget it. I'm not interested. If it's a man, I'm not interested. And, and he one? said it often enough that finally one of them said, well, don't worry. Don't worry. We've t we can't tell you who it is, but we've talked to her and everything's going to be fine. You'll be fine. You're going to have a good time. We have the production notes and it shows very clearly that he's not at all interested. He wasn't interested in anything unusual. It wasn't just he didn't want to go on a show with a man having a secret. He didn't want anything unusual. Jonathan was curious to find out who it could be and therefore wanted to appear on the show. He had a feeling that it was his ex-girlfriend who he had recently broken up with. He also had some suspicions that Donna or Scott could be involved in this, so he called them to ask if it were either of them, and both Donna and Scott denied that they were his secret admirer. They had wanted to keep the surprise going until the big reveal at the show. However, this seemingly innocent little white lie would prove to be costly. On the 6th of March 1995, Scott, Donna and Jonathan were all in Chicago on the set of The Jenny Jones Show. Donna and Scott were the first two to come out on stage, whilst Jonathan waited unknowingly backstage. Now Donna has been helping Scott pursue his secret crush on John. How, how bad's the crush? Tell me about the first time you met him. When Jenny Jones asked Scott how he had met Jonathan, Scott explained that he had met him whilst Jonathan was fixing Donna's car. He told her and the audience how Jonathan had been under the car, so he had only seen the lower half of his body. Uh, basically, well, he was under a car, working on her brake line. Yeah. And that was your first time? What was your first impression? Um, well, I only saw the lower half, I'm so you can imagine. Jenny asked Scott if he knew whether Jonathan was gay, and in response to that, Scott said, no, anything is possible. John, he, he knows you're gay, right? Yeah. Yes. Do, do you know that he is? No. Anything's possible. <laughs> Scott also voiced another secret. There was a specific fantasy that he had about Jonathan. Scott admitted to everyone in the room that he had thought about tying Jonathan up in a hammock that he had in his backyard and that the dream involved champagne and whipped cream. I got a pretty big hammock in my yard and I just, yeah, I thought about tying him up to my hammock. Um, and? Well, it entails like whipped cream and champagne and stuff like that. I think she pushed him into things that he didn't really want to do. Like, um, Scott was very nervous. <laughs> um, yeah, actually. Jenny Jones told them to make it look good for the audience or she would be very mad. And they offered Scott to give him flowers and Scott wouldn't do it. 
wanted Scott to kiss John. Scott wouldn't do it. When it was finally time for Jonathan to find out who his secret admirer was, he walked out on stage and saw his friends Donna and Scott sitting there. Jonathan went over and kissed Donna on the cheek and then exchanged a handshake with an eager Scott who immediately pulled him into a tight hug. I think Scott went on the show not with an intention of cursing anybody. I think Scott went on the show thinking this was going to be a spectacular way that he could show somebody that he cares about them. As soon as Jonathan sat in his own seat, Jenny Jones asked if Jonathan believed that his friend's Donna had a crush on him. In response, Jonathan stated that he did not think that because they were only good friends. Did you think Donna had the crush on you? Did I? No, we're good friends. Jenny Jones revealed to Jonathan that it was in fact not Donna who had a crush on him, but Scott. Well, guess what? It's Scott that has the crush on you. You lied to me. Jonathan told Jenny that he was definitely heterosexual and that he was not interested in Scott. Well, you know, it's flattering, but... It's flattering, but you're not interested? There's no, no I mean, way. There's no a, way, right? No, but I am uh, definitely a heterosexual, I guess you could say. Throughout the taping, laughter and applause could be heard from the people sitting in the audience. Uh, Donna lives upstairs for me, and uh, Scott was a guy one night I pulled in, she was looking at her brakes, and I was looking at the brakes too, and uh, Scott pulls in behind me and goes, well, your car's pretty funny because I drew this piece sign in the back of my car and it's you know it says peace man on it and then scott says you look like a hippie in your car and then you get out of your car and, and then she he told donna that i was a good looking guy and donna told me and i said well you know it's flattering but it's flattering but you're not interested there's no, no I mean, way there's no way right no i'm i'm uh, you know not well, scott, at least you got it out are you very disappointed however the taping of the talk show filmed that day would never be released on television because scott would end up dead before they had a chance to air it after the taping of the show, the three friends enjoyed their time together in Chicago. Everything seemed fine, and they even publicly agreed that they would all stay friends. They went out together to a party, and Jonathan, not wanting the party to end, had suggested to Donna and Scott that they should change their flights to the same as his, and then he could drive them home from the airport. Jonathan and Donna agreed to do this, and after their plane landed back to their home state of Michigan, Jonathan drove Scott and Donna back to where Scott lived. They briefly stayed at his trailer, and then they went out for a drink together at a nearby bar called Brewski's. When the three friends had finished partying, they went back to their normal day-to-day -day lives. To an outsider, it would appear that the three friends had stayed true to their word, and that there was no bad blood from being on the show. In spite of this, everything would suddenly change when Jonathan arrived home from work one day and saw a note and a gift that had been left outside his house. Three days after the taping, on the 9th of March 1995, Jonathan went to work and when he arrived home after his shift, he found a flashing orange construction barrier light and a handwritten note outside of his door. The note was clearly from Scott. He goes home and he sees a note written by Scott that uh, if you really want to get it off, I'm the only one who has the right tool. Jonathan sees this and I think the bomb is really going off at that point. This note was enough to enrage Jonathan. He just indicated that he became angry, and uh, at that point he indicated yeah, he, he just made a decision to kill Amador. And so he went to a nearby bank where he withdrew money, and then he went to a couple hardware stores where he bought a shotgun. He then proceeded to assemble the gun, and then finally, with the loaded gun by his side, he got into his car and made his way to the trailer park where Scott lived. When he arrived at Scott's trailer, he arrived at the front door empty-handed. Scott greeted him and invited him inside, 
and when Jonathan entered, he saw that Scott was not alone. Scott's friend, Gary, was also present in the trailer and was reading a newspaper on the couch. There's some conflicting information here, but some sources say that Scott admitted to Jonathan that the note was indeed from him. Jonathan then told the two men that he needed to go back outside to turn off his car as he had left it running. Jonathan went outside and shut the front door behind him. A few moments later, Scott heard a knocking on the door and when Scott reopened it, he saw Jonathan standing there with the loaded gun. Scott immediately yelled out for help towards his friend Gary, crying out, Gary, help, he's got a gun. According to Gary, Scott picked up a nearby chair as a shield in an attempt to defend himself. However, tragically, this was not enough. Jonathan then shot Scott twice in the chest and the bullets immediately ended Scott's life. Jonathan then proceeded to leave the trailer and he immediately called 911 using a payphone at a gas station near to Jonathan's sister's house. When the operator answered the call, Jonathan told them that he thought he had just shot a man. This would be Jonathan's first confession. Immediately after admitting his crime to the 911 operator, Jonathan began to cry. After his confession, Jonathan was arrested for one count of first-degree murder and a second count of felony of a firearm. A year later, on the 14th of October 1996, Jonathan Schmitz appeared in court for the trial and both sides fought hard. The prosecution tried to prove that Jonathan committed first-degree premeditated murder and that there was nothing mentally or physically wrong with him that night. Jonathan Schmitz had the time to think over his actions as he went to the bank, purchased the gun, loaded it, drove to Scott's house and then went back out to his car to collect the gun. No matter what the Jenny Jones show did, what the defendant did was a hundred times worse. A person cannot kill another person for words that that person spoke. A person cannot kill another person because of embarrassment or humiliation. That is not an excuse to murder. The defense, on the other hand, tried to prove that Jonathan was not in the right frame of mind that night and that he did not have the ability to think, reason or plan. They had a witness at the scene and a confession from Jonathan himself from when he had called 911, so they couldn't really say he hadn't done it. Instead, the strategy was to blame everyone but Jonathan. Ladies and gentlemen, there was no murder here. There was a shooting, but there was no murder. The evidence is going to show that Jonathan Schmitz came into this world possessed of a disease, depression, developed alcoholism. See, the prosecution will be unable to prove what he'd like to prove. In this case, the pre-meditation, the deliberation, it's not there because John did not have that ability, and you're gonna hear that testimony, he did not have the ability to think, reason, or plan. They were hell-bent on showing the jury that Jonathan was not fully responsible for his actions and that he himself was a victim of the Jenny Jones show. They said that Jonathan was humiliated and horrified when he was ambushed and that he was completely out of control as a consequence of this ambush. The truth is that John was humiliated when he was ambushed, he was horrified when he was ambushed, and he was completely out of control as a consequence of this ambush, which ignited 
one of those uh, cycles of depression, agitation, and violence. During the trial, it was revealed that Jonathan had suffered from either bipolar disorder or depressive disorder and had a long history of mental health issues. It was also revealed that he suffered from Graves' disease, an illness that affects thyroid hormones, and in addition to this, Jonathan was also dependent on alcohol. These were all factors which the defense used to their advantage, and they stated that these things could have resulted in Jonathan having a lack of control over his actions. We're talking about a person who has reacted very emotionally to a very traumatic event. He happens to have had bipolar or unipolar depressive disorder that was coupled with this Graves' disease, and he probably reacted in a way that presumably you and I may not have reacted, but still it's an understandable reaction as all of the, all the psychiatric and medical testimony will, will support. What diagnoses did you come up with as a consequence of these evaluations and observations? He had what is called a major affective disorder, depression reoccurring. Are the attributes of a major affective disorder such as John is afflicted with, do they have an impact on an, a person's ability to control or loss of control? Yes, the individual can lose control as a result of being afflicted by major affective disorder. The defense had also used the idea that along with his mental health issues, Jonathan had acted in something called gay panic defense. Gay panic defense is used to describe a person who has acted in a state of violence due to feeling uncomfortable from sexual advances from a person of the same sex. Jonathan's team devised a plan which made it appear that Scott's death was his own fault and that Jonathan was a victim. Did you end up in the hospital on certain occasions? Yes, I did, sir. When was that? It was a couple times. Once was both when he beat me up. I was in it for two days at one time. This was a very conflicting line of defense to many, which sparked debate and drew a lot of public attention. During the trial, it was said that Jonathan had been brought up in a household that did not think that homosexuality was okay or acceptable. You provided a tape summarizing your thoughts on this particular case, is that correct? Yes. I want to ask you a question, Mr. Schmitz, about one particular statement you made in that tape, and it's the following. Fathers thought the reason that he had to kill Scott Amateur is to prove that he was not homosexual. Remember saying that on the tape? I remember it was speculative thought. When you had conversations with your son, did he express any statements to you about people thinking he was gay? Are people gonna think that he was gay if they saw the show? Yes, he said, right. now, Gramp and Gramp and everybody's gonna think I'm gay. And your son was concerned about that, is that right? Yes. I mean, how would you feel if your father thought that maybe you were homosexual? Jonathan's grandparents were also said to be homophobic, and that in the past they had told Jonathan that they believed a man is gay if a gay man is hitting on him. It was clear that Jonathan really cared about what his family thought of him. There was also a theory suggested that after Jonathan, Scott and Donna went for drinks at Brewski's on their return to Michigan after the show, that there might have been an intimate encounter between Jonathan and Scott. In the end, the defense somehow managed to convince the jury that Jonathan's crime was second-degree murder and not first-degree murder. The difference between first and second-degree murder is that first-degree murder is with intent and is also premeditated. In the end, Jonathan Schmitz was declared guilty of second-degree murder and also guilty for the second count of felony firearms charge and was sentenced to 25 to 50 years in jail. As to the charge of first-degree premeditated murder, is guilty of the lesser offense of second-degree murder. 
possession of a firearm during the commission of a first-degree premeditated murder, also guilty. However, on the 15th of September 1998, the original sentencing was overruled by the Michigan State of Appeals, as the defense had stated that they should have been allowed to remove a juror prior to the trial. It was never explained why the defense did not want the juror there, but the judge later agreed that it had been unfair. Jonathan was granted a retrial, and when he reappeared in court in 1999 for his resentencing, this time he could only be tried for second-degree murder. This meant the defense would try and fight the case as manslaughter. As you're going to learn during the course of this trial, this was anything but play. It was real, it was permanent, it was cold-blooded, it was calculated. Plain and simple. It was an execution. You're here because the evidence will prove that on March 9th of 1995, Scott Amador was murdered because he had the misfortune of angering the wrong man, Jonathan Schmitz. A man with a gun, a man with a grudge, a man who would think nothing of firing that gun twice into the chest of another human being at close range. Jonathan Schmitz, a man who would plan his crime, execute his crime, and execute a human being in the process. There is no question that this is second-degree murder. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, at the end of the trial, I will ask you for justice. The facts and circumstances are going to show you that this killing was as a result of provocation, provocation that was created by Scott Amater, provocation that caused a reasonable man just to lose him. I mean, the facts are going to show you that in this case, he lost him. He acted on impulse without a time to cool down. You're going to find that Jonathan Schmitz is not a murderer. In the end, however, Jonathan ultimately received the same outcome as before and was sentenced again to one count of second-degree murder and felony of a firearm. Have you reached a verdict? Yes, we have, ma'am. Would you please read the verdict from the verdict form? Second-degree murder, guilty. Felony firearm, guilty. The evidence at trial showed you set upon a plan of purchasing a weapon, ammunition, and that that victim was shot at close range twice. The sentence of this court will rob you of your youth, but it will not rob you of your life. It is the sentence of the court on the murder, second degree, 25 to 50 years, on the felony firearm, two years. Those sentences are to be served consecutive. Do you think this lays any of the responsibility at the doorstep of the Jenny Jones talk show? Of course. None of this would have happened if it wasn't for Jenny Jones exploiting homosexuality, a sensitive issue, uh, and then exploiting these persons that had difficulties with the tolerance of uh, homosexuality, such as Jonathan Smith's. Frank, will you move ahead with your lawsuit against the Jenny Jones show? Certainly. During the trial, it was widely debated whether the Jenny Jones show played a part in Scott's murder. Scott's family wanted justice, so they filed a wrongful death and negligence suit against the company that owned the Jenny Jones show, Warner Brothers. They claimed the show was ultimately to blame for Scott's death. You won't have a show unless there is somebody who gets humiliated or embarrassed. Yes or no? Absolutely not. And you also understand that the reason that you asked Scott Amador to tell a sexual fantasy and the reason that you played it in front of John was you wanted a reaction, didn't you? You didn't know if he would be hurt inside, did you? No. So you used him 
not knowing what would happen to him. You used him as a source of entertainment, having no idea what his emotions would be for other people, didn't you? No, that's not the way I see it. I don't use people on the show. During the trial, Jeffrey Fieger focused on proving that the show's producers lied to Jonathan to make him come on the show. He argued that the producers misled him by refusing to tell him that his secret admirer would be a man and only telling him that it could be a man or a woman. Jonathan Schmitz had not been told that the topic was same-sex crush and that his admirer was a gay man. I don't know what he was told. That was the truth. The Jenny Jones producers, however, said that the show had nothing to do with the murder and denied misleading Jonathan before the show and suggested something else happened between the two men that triggered the killing. I told him it could be a man or a woman. It was his choice to come on. But you knew it was a man, didn't you? Yes. So saying it could be a man or it could be a woman was a lie, wasn't it? I don't think so. I told him it could be a man or a woman. Could it have been a woman? No. But you told John it could have been a woman, right? Yes. Isn't that a lie? Told him something case. that it couldn't have been. Sure. Jeffrey Fieger also emphasized that Jonathan's history of mental illness meant that the Jenny Jones show should and could have done to screen him and prevent him from coming on the show. He said they could have asked whether he had been hospitalized for mental illness, and he also believed that the show could have provided post-show counselling for Jonathan to make sure he was okay. The defendants, however, argued that the show had no reason to suspect that Jonathan would have killed Scott after the show, and that Jonathan's behaviour and answers in the pre-show interview did not suggest that he was homophobic or had the potential for violence. Scott's mother had stated that she believed the show had ultimately pushed Jonathan over the edge and that they were the reason that Scott's life had been taken. Originally the family won and the Jenny Jones show was ordered to pay the family $25 million. However, this ruling was later overturned when the Supreme Court refused to allow the case to be heard in court. The aftermath of what is called the Jenny Jones killing changed talk shows across the nation and how talk shows are operated. Talk shows must now psychologically profile guests before they appear on shows. They must also give guests counselling after the show to make sure that they are okay before leaving. Although Scott's life was devastatingly cut short, Jonathan Schmitz is now a free man. This sparked outrage from some of Scott's family, especially Scott's brother, who wanted to know that Jonathan was no longer homophobic and had received proper therapy before being released from jail. My whole family was hurt. We will never be the same. Jonathan was released from jail in August of 2017 due to good behavior, and it was last reported that he now lives with his family in his hometown of Lapeer, Michigan, and has decided to stay out of the public eye. As for The Jenny Jones Show, it was cancelled in 2003. I have always felt that there was more sympathy for, for Jonathan than there should have been. In my opinion, there's never been a clear-cut case of first-degree premeditated murder. It was only, you know, the circumstances under which it occurred that garnered him that type of sympathy. I'm sorry about what happened to him, but I have no sympathy for the actions that he took. No matter your thoughts on this case, and whether you think Jonathan was indeed ambushed, the fact remains that Scott was killed and lost his life, and that Jonathan's violent actions were completely wrong. 
No one should be murdered for expressing their feelings for someone. We all have embarrassing situations or things that we wish in life would not have happened. It doesn't give you the license to go and make a conscious decision to take a human life. It's one thing to blow somebody off. It's another thing to blow them away. I hope that Jonathan Schmitz has well and truly been rehabilitated. And as always, my heart goes out to the victim's family who lost their precious Scott. I don't sleep. <laughs> It's hard, because I expect him there all the time. And I just picture this hole with smoke coming out of it. And it's like living in a movie. It's not really happening.